Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Happy holidays, cinephiles, and welcome to one of the most unusual episodes we ever did for a holiday, and frankly, it is one of my absolute favorites, and that is our conversation about Love Actually with our very special guest, Michael Vogel. Absolutely. I mean, there's nobody who loves this movie more than Michael Vogel, although I am a close second here, but certainly this, I think, is one of the most unique episodes, both part one and two, that we've ever done uh, because of Steve's approach to it, which was pretty novel to remove each of the storylines and tell them straight as opposed to all mixed in. And I think this makes us makes both of these episodes, two of the most unusual and satisfying episodes for you all to enjoy this holiday season or this Christmas season. And I think what was so cool about that conversation is we were able to talk about all the things that we adore about that movie. And they are many. And then also talk about some of the problematic nature of some of the sequences without disparaging the movie as a whole, which all three of us, I think, really, really love. Absolutely. So sit back, relax, pull out your uh, uh, pull out your index cards that you've written a whole message on and um, watch Love Actually Part 1. Tell her that you love her. No way. Sam, you've got nothing to lose and you'll always regret it if you don't. I never told your mom enough. I should have told her every day because she was perfect every day. You've seen the films, kiddo. It ain't over till it's over. Okay, Dad. Let's do it. Let's go get the shit kicked out of us by love. Yes. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles. And happy holidays, everyone, because this is our annual holiday special. My name is Steve Boris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, a voiceover guy, and um, mad lover of the film we're going to talk about, but even more of a mad lover of the guest <laughs> we have on the show today, Steve. That's right. He might be the most holiday-centric, the best Christmas-celebrating Jew I know. He what? just put on a holiday hat, and that man is animation writer and producer Michael Vogel. Welcome back to the Cinephiles. Ho, ho, ho. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> uh, we are very happy to have you. And I'll tell you, the movie that we're going to discuss is one I just always associate with you. And that, of course, is Love Actually, directed by Richard Curtis. Michael, do you remember how you first came to this film? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I saw it mm-hmm. at the ArcLight uh, theaters with, uh, if not both of you, definitely John, maybe yeah. you, Steve. It was a big group of us, and my boyfriend I think at I the was time. there. I think yeah. you were there. I think uh, I was very excited for this movie. Like, I love Christmas, as you said. I love rom-coms. And when this movie trailer came out and it was like, oh, here is a Christmas movie that has a bunch of different rom-coms in it all put together around Christmas. I was like, this is going to be the greatest thing in the world. And uh, I really, really loved it at the time. And I still really love it, although parts of it have not aged great. So this is going to be an interesting discussion because every year, I mean, I watch, I've watched Love Actually every year. I think it's like a huge part of our group of friends. Like it's been a huge part of our lives. But uh, as you watch it each progressive year, certain things tend to stick out more and more. So although I still love it, uh, there will be parts of this review where it doesn't necessarily sound like I do. John, I guess it's I guess you have the same answer to the question of how you first came to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely saw it with Michael Devisado, but then came, went back by myself a couple mm. of times um, to see it because a I'm a huge Anglophile, so I love British just about anything British, and then you throw in Christmas, which Michael is responsible for resuscitating in my life uh, through his friendship and the faux Christmas and all the stuff that we did. So it was a film that hit at the right time. It's so romantic, and uh, I was a huge Martine McCutcheon fan from having watched EastEnders while we were studying in Britain, uh, and so to see her in the movie, I was, all, you know, this just struck, or this just checked all the boxes, and yes, as Michael says, although there are still reservations nowadays with that movie, overall, the message of the movie is what I walk away from loving and uh, um, uh, feeling is a good uh, thing to talk about during Christmas time. Uh, it, it's so funny. The first thing I was just thinking about is, so this movie's 2003. Mm. My friendship with you guys is pretty new. And what what's interesting to think at about it, because we met 2000, time. 2001. Is that right? I think we yeah. met. That's when we met. And, and what's funny is to think about, we were already all so close just in those first couple of years. You know what I mean? Like once we kind of met, we locked in and that group became really, really solid. Uh, I think yeah, um, there was a lot of love in that group, actually. <laughs> oh, well Yikes. played, sir. Um, and the other thing, uh, Mike, I, I agree with both of you. I love this movie. This movie works on me every single time. I enjoy it from start to finish. And it might be the movie that I like the most that I'm thinking about it. I have the most problems with. And, <laughs> and, and this is the thing is that the movie works so well on an emotional level that it's only on this kind of thinking about, well, wait, what's really going on here that it ends up being a little bit odd (laughs) at times. Yeah. It's funny. It's, I I was thinking about it. This, this movie now has become like, it's the relative that you love more than anything who makes you feel really, really good every time you visit them, even though they're a little bit older and say some things sometimes (laughs) that you're like, Oh, aunt, aunt Betty, why aunt Betty, why'd you say it like that? If you had just said it this way, it would have been fine. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you guys and I agree with what John said. Like, I think this movie works because aside from some of the details that we will get into that, like when you look at it now, you're like, man, they really kind of, kind of could have done that a little bit differently. The messaging underneath it, uh, both about love and about Christmas uh, and what the two kind of have in common, I think really does hit home and continues to hit home. So even though some of the specifics can get a little bit questionable, it just hits you in the feels every single year. And, you know, it's funny. 
It's it's got amazing performances. It's got a ridiculous cast. Like there's so much going for it that at the end of the day, uh, that Craig Armstrong score hits and you're just like, mm. yeah, you know what? I'll give it to you, love. Actually, every year I'm like, is is this going to be the year that I don't like it? And thus far, that has not happened. Agreed. Agreed. Well, let's. I'll give you a little bit of pre-production. This is from Richard, writer director Richard Curtis, and of course we know him for four weddings at a funeral, Notting Hill, and Bridget Jones were all before this. And and the way it started was he started writing two different movies at once, and one was this movie about this prime minister and his attraction to his assistant and how that affects geopolitics, and the other was this movie who a movie about a writer who goes to Portugal to write this novel and falls in love with this person. And he just kept getting more and more frustrated trying <laughs> to figure out how to write these two films. And then he was watching some Robert Altman movies and then he watched Pulp Fiction. And he went, wait a minute. What if instead of doing these two movies, I do a movie where I have these multiple stories that are linked thematically. And that is how love actually came about. Wow. Um, and initially, not a Christmas movie had nothing to do with Christmas. Wasn't set around Christmas. Um, and there were 14 scenarios, two of which got dumped, uh, in the writing process, two of which were filmed, mm -hmm. but cut out of the film. I only know what one of them was, which was, there was a headmistress at the school who had a lesbian relationship. And that's mm -hmm. all I know about it. I don't know if either of you know any more about these other ones. Yeah, I think I've seen, I think you can see, uh, I, I don't know if you like watch it uh, on a streaming service, but when you had the DVD, they had some deleted scenes and there was mm. a scene with the headmistress uh, and you saw how, I think it was like something with Emma Thompson's son, Bernard. Uh, mm. She got called into the school and that's how you kind of met the headmistress. So that's how it was connected. And then you saw the headmistress at home, which is a shame because I will say that one of the things that does stick out year after year, I'm like, look at this diverse group of <laughs> mostly white people who are all white cisgender straight people and who are all in love and there are no nary nary a homosexual lesbian non-binary trans person to be seen um uh and, and it's funny richard curtis said something interesting which is that his goal was to take all of the fat out of all stories um so that he would have basically 10 great beginnings 10 great middles and 10 great ends and no none of the material to fill out a complete movie just a great beginning great middle great end and i do think that's like what's great about them i mean i think that's one of the things that really does work about it is that each one of these stories is at the bare minimum of what you need to know um and when you're telling a story with this many characters and you want to get any kind of decent runtime you need to but uh but that i think in that he is really successful and that's why the movie mostly works so speaking of that I want to do something that has never been done on the cinephiles. It is an experiment. It might completely crash and burn, <laughs> but rather than going through this movie in order, scene by scene, moment by moment, as we normally do on this podcast, I would like to break this into nine separate short films and tell that story just on its own to see what the story is like without the intercutting. Yeah. Is that going to make these stories better? <laughs> I have no idea. I, I have my theories, but we'll see. <laughs> um, but but we'll start because everything starts together. And the opening of the movie is just this lovely sequence at an airport where we see hugs and we see people reunited. And it is just, just beautiful. And this is all hidden camera footage. 
They filmed it at Heathrow and basically they're just looking around for something interesting. And every time they got a hug or a kiss or a little kid jumping into someone's arms, the assistants ran out with their paperwork to get them to sign a release so that they could use those images in the movie. And they did this for several weeks, just looking for great shots. <laughs> Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. Every time I watch this, I, f I go like, wait, how is this happening after 9-11? Because we don't greet people at airports in this way anymore. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. And I love the way they do the title, which is that we hear love actually is all around, and then the words fade out, leaving just love actually. Mm. How are you feeling watching the opening of this movie? I mean, I feel great. I think this I think this is what makes the movie so good because this is something that I actually believe. And I think that post 9-11, when we were living in a time where there was a lot of anger and a lot of hate and a lot of mistrust and a lot of people starting to look at anyone who they perceived as other as dangerous or different. I think that this message hit really, really hard. Um, yeah. But I think that where we are today uh, as a society mm -hmm. and as a world, it hits even harder. I think that we focus so much of our attention um, on the news, in social media, in the arguments and debates that we have about all the things that make us different and what we don't agree on. And I think that, look, and, and obviously, depending on your politics and where you live and what you feel like, you know, you might agree with me, you might not agree with me. But when it gets to the day to day of how we treat each other, I do think that there is more love and compassion in the world than we sometimes uh, can think that there is. And so I think a movie that kind of just states that at the top, and that is sort of its mission statement as it goes into all of these separate stories, um, I just inherently believe that. And so I think that's kind of what makes me always, every year when I put it on, like this opening scene hits me like that. Yeah, for me, it's more a film that represents the possibility of hope, the possibility of living in that world. And I, and I would say that back then, certainly that's something that we were still somewhat hopeful of. And certainly, as you mentioned, Steve, coming out of nine 11, that experience of nine 11, remember this is two years later, only two yeah. years later. Uh, and this is a British film, but the overall stories here and the overall point of these things is to get lost in these, this fascination of romantic love, of romantic comedy, of romantic stuff. And the thing is, we've moved on as a society. The romantic comedy genre is almost dead. It's completely morphed into something else. And because we've kind of exposed romantic comedies or romantic films as kind of like, oh, these are fantasies, not actually reality. But what the gift of love actually is that it lets you disappear for a couple hours into a place of possibility, of hope, of belief that we can be better as human beings. And as Michael alluded to, it doesn't feel that way, even more so than after 9-11. Nowadays, it really feels like, yes, people love their immediate people around each other. And I wonder how many people listening to us now have just finished having a terrible fight with one of their family members at a Christmas dinner over something political. And it's just, you know, those are the things that are happening now in our world, unfortunately. And so this film represents the possibility that if we just lay down our arms and had honest, open, conversation to connect with each other remember that what a gift life is and what a gift love is we can find our way back to it so um 
yeah, that's why I love the movie so much. It re- it represents what could be. I love what both of you said so much, and and what hit me as both of you were talking was was something Michael said right when we started about I remember was it Aunt Betty at that party that says <laughs> those strange things is that that's th- this thing of there might be people that we know that aren't don't do everything exactly the way we do we like them and maybe they even make us angry and yet we can still love them you right. could still see aunt betty at heathrow airport and still want to give her a really big hug because as you said right when you started talking about aunt betty is that she makes you feel really good is that you really like her despite those things you know yeah and i think that um you know, being gay, there's sort of like, there's always that like division line of like, when you start talking about, well, we should all just love each other and respect each other on different, each other on different sides. And I think that, you know, there's a big difference between somebody who is actively trying to oppress your way of life or make your life harder. And someone like Aunt Betty, who just doesn't really get it and keeps asking if you're ever going to like find a girlfriend and you're like, Aunt Betty, it's not going to happen. Like, let's just chill (laughs) out. Like, and so I think that sometimes we just kind of lump everyone into like either side of this epic war that we are all battling on social media but i think that what love actually says is look sometimes you just give aunt betty a hug and you say you're old aunt betty you're never gonna get it but but it's cool you're you're not actively trying to you know uh legislate against my lifestyle so i think we're good for the moment well and i think we should just leave aunt betty for the moment and enter into our first short film which by the way i had a lot of trouble trying to figure out what order to tell these stories in but i thought we should start pretty much where the movie starts which is in a recording studio with billy mack the great bill nye whose performance is amazing in this movie and he is at the moment struggling to remember the new lyrics to his old song i feel it in my fingers I feel it in my toes I feel it in my toes, yeah Love is all around me And so the thing I'm afraid you did it again, Bill. I love that because I mean, also again, this is like early 2000s when Bill Nagy was still kind of like kind of coming into our consciousness. So to have him play a character like this, and especially when remember a lot of these older acts were coming back around this time too. So it made sense to kind of have a character like this in the movie. A lot of these older actors or older musicians were coming back to kind of reclaim a little bit of their throne and come back and tour. Uh, and so it just made so much sense. I always, I've always just really loved this scene because I love that it. I mean, here's a movie that is going to very genuinely tell you about how important love is and how magical the Christmas time is. Mm. And it opens with them taking a song about love and very crassly, yeah. in the most commercial way possible, <laughs> yeah. jamming the word Christmas in there uh, to make it work. And I just love that we sort of start. I think that's part of the humor of the movie is that as genuine as it is trying to be about romance and love and Christmas, it also has a little bit of a cynical point of view underneath it, which is, I think, what balances it out and makes it not like super schmaltzy. Mm. So stop starting off with Billy Mac, who is just this his day, his best days are past him. He is grasping at this straw and they are literally slamming an extra syllable into this song. <laughs> and, you know, and the magic of it is we see how stupid the song is at the beginning. And yet when we come out of the movie at the end, we're still humming it. And you have his manager, Joe, played by Gregor Fisher. And it seems like this is his idea of like one last chance to somehow (laughs) cash in on his old popularity. And the other thing, by the way, which uh, I always have to remind myself is because we think of Christmas movies, we think of 
fun for the whole family mm. a wholesome g-rated good time and that is not love actually <laughs> not at all and you know right from the beginning because when he messes up those lyrics one of the things he says is oh fuck wank bugger shitting ass head and hole <laughs> which is like oh my god <laughs> this is a this is a different kind of thing well also it it, it it gives you the sensibility like the british sensibility is very chill about cuss words about explosions of anger about you know having watched so much of that it's it's really still kind of shocking sometimes when i watch how casually they use cuss words or back and forth or a little bit of violence or whatever in their stuff and the stuff that's available to almost everybody so it's letting you know right off the bat yes we're going to be touchy-feely but we're also going to be a little bit rawer than you anticipate and it really is a great way to walk you into that i love bill nye's physicality Every time he like shakes off the moment that he messed up the lyrics, shakes off the horribleness of what they're doing, and then tries to get into the spirit of the song. And the moment that he mm -hmm. gets the lyrics right is so great. And Joe's, the manager's reaction to it is so genuine. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Christmas is all around me. All around and me. so the feeling grows. And when they finally get it, in the middle of the lyrics, Billy Mac says, This is shit, isn't it? Yep. Solid gold shit, Maestro. <laughs> and the song gets some radio play. And the DJ who's playing the song, the first thing he says, And that was the Christmas effort by the once great Billy Mac. I could safely put my hand up my ass and say that is the worst record I've heard. At which point he realizes that Billy Mac is actually in the studio because he is the interview for the next DJ. Um, and now we know what this is. This is a cash grab. Nobody respects this song at all. Nobody respects Billy Mack at all at this point. And we go into this very, very surprising interview with this DJ. So, Billy, welcome back to the Airwaves. New Christmas single cover of Love is All Around. Except we've changed the word love to Christmas. Yes. Uh, is that an important message to you, Bill? Not really, Mike. Christmas is a time for people with someone they love in their lives. And that's not you? That's not me, Michael. When I was young and successful, I was greedy and foolish, and now I'm left with no one, wrinkled and alone. <laughs> wow. And this is what we see from him, is that he is going to be crassly, brutally honest about his horrible record and exactly why he's doing it. And what's so great is watching the DJ react to, oh, this guy is actually going to tell the truth. <laughs> Thanks for that, Bill. For what? Well, for actually giving a real answer to a question. It doesn't often happen here at Radio Watford, I can tell you. Ask me anything you like, I'll tell you the truth. The best shag you ever had. Britney Spears. <laughs> and the reaction from the manager is so great and it's only topped by no any kidding <laughs> she was rubbish <laughs> and he basically says that the record's crap and that it's a cash grab and then this is the key and this is going to be the plot of this short film but wouldn't it be great if number one this christmas wasn't some smug teenager but an old ex-heroin addict searching for a comeback at any price I love him every moment he's on the screen in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what we set up to 
is another one of the themes of this of this film is all those young popsters come Christmas Day they'll be stretched out naked with a cute bird balancing on their balls and I'll be stuck in some dingy flat with my manager Joe ugliest man in the world fucking miserable because our fucking gamble didn't pay off <laughs> which is in fact spoiler alert exactly yeah. where he's going to end up yeah, yeah he's going to turn down the cute bird bouncing on his balls for his fat manager joe mm -hmm. well and that's where i lean kind of to what you were saying at the beginning about richard curtis's goal it's like so if you just take billy mack's story and i know we're jumping ahead a little bit because uh to, to get where we're going but like here is a guy who is doing a cash grab and his want his desire in this short story is to get back to the top and get invited to all the big parties and he yep. gets it and then he chooses the other. And he literally says, like, he says in this opening interview, uh, he says, you know, oh, that is that is, you know, Christmas is for people who are in love. And that's not me. I don't have any love in my life. I made these choices, but hopefully I'm going to get this. And so then when he gets to the end and is almost about to get that and chooses who he realizes uh, the platonic love of his life is, it completely is satisfying as a story. You're yep. like, oh, this checks out. This is a perfect arc of a beginning yep. middle and end for a story yeah. and and he puts out the plea because he he wants this gamble to play off and he wants it to pay off not because it's a good record not because he wants anyone to think it's a good record he wants it to pay off because he's telling people exactly what he wants he says so if you believe in father christmas children like your uncle billy does buy my festering turd of a record and particularly enjoy the incredible crassness of the moment when we try to squeeze an extra syllable into the fourth line. <laughs> I think you're referring to, uh, if you really love Christmas. Come on and let it snow. Ouch. <laughs> well, and I also think there's a theme to this movie that is a little bit underneath the love and the Christmas, which is because it comes up a lot and it's not something that really I associated with Christmas until this movie is at Christmas, you tell the truth. Yeah. Right. And that's not really something that is a that's not a tradition that we have in my house. Uh, <laughs> it's like the airing of the grievances inside. It's like Festivus, I guess. But but like it comes up so often. And in the Billy Mac story, you see that by telling the complete unvarnished, ugly truth, like this is a crass record. I don't give a shit about it. You know, it's horrible. I know it's horrible. But wouldn't this be great? And because he told the truth, he gets it. That is yep. that is the lesson. The moral is tell the truth at Christmas and you get your Christmas wish. It's <laughs> a great, great point. Also, what, it, it's a oh, catchy piece of crap, which sells. So that's another part of it, too. The fact that Absolutely it's true. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny. And it, it does point out the fact of how rarely you actually hear the truth of someone who's plugging their thing on the radio or on TV. Almost never. Um, and a week later, the song is actually climbing the charts. And we're on a TV show with Billy Mack. And there are these young TV hosts who apparently are young, famous TV hosts in, in England at that time. Uh, and we're talking about the competition, which is some band called Blue, I think. Billy, I understand you've got a prize for our competition winners. Yes, I have, Antro Deck. It's a, it's a personalized felt tip pen. Oh, great. It's brilliant. It, it even writes on glass. Billy Mac turns around on camera and starts drawing something on the poster of his competition. And the hosts are looking, trying to figure out what it was. And his his head is sort of blocking so we can't see exactly what he's writing. And finally, he steps away and we see that he has written, they've got little pricks. <laughs> uh, a lot of kids watching Billy. Oh, yeah. 
Hi, kids. Here's an important message from your Uncle Bill. Don't buy drugs. <laughs> and you could feel the sort of sigh of relief that, okay, he's going to do the correct bullshit that you're supposed to do when you're on TV. Yeah. And he says, become a pop star and they give you them for free. And I do believe uh, it's a commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> he really does have just like the best lines. I mean, he's just, he just gets to be just this ridiculous, horrible caricature of a human. And God bless him for like bringing what he does to the role because he actually makes you fall in love with him. And it's, it's just, it's just gold. Yeah. And, 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 and it's just what you said is that he is telling the truth that never gets said on TV. And then guess what? The, the song is doing well enough. He gets to cut a music video <laughs> and the music video is, is Richard Curtis's tribute to Robert Palmer yep. <laughs> with, with all, all the women in very sexy Santa outfits playing in the band behind him. There's the, it's all just filthy looking. <laughs> it is right before Christmas. The song is fighting for number one, but it's still being outsold by this band blue. But I'm hoping for a late surge. <laughs> and if I reach number one, I promise to sing the song stark naked on TV on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and the guy interviewing says, you mean that? And Billy goes, you want a preview? Drops his <laughs> pants and sticks his crotch in the interview's face. Who says, oh, that'll never make number one. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just the, these lovely, uh, wholesome Christmas moments in this movie, one after the other. And guess what? It's right before Christmas, and on the radio, they are announcing the number one song, because is this a thing, by the way, in England, that there's a competition for the number one Christmas song right before Christmas? Is this... Ever I mean, I don't know if there is, but by the way, I think that is something we should employ every year. I mean, I guess it's stupid now because Mariah Carey just wins every year by default. But I mean, it would still be lovely. Well, unless you did new songs, it has to be a new song. Well, there are new songs every year yeah. for Christmas. I, I like to go and find the new songs and enjoy them and listen to them. Like Ariana Grande's Christmas song, I think it was a year or two ago. I love that song. Whatever you feel about the Blake Shelton Gwen Stefani song, you can uh, go one way or another. But Kelly Clarkson, I think, had a great one last year about being a present under the tree. It was yeah. great. Kelly so, Clarkson's song is the, I think, the next best after Mariah Carey's. If yeah, I was going I to start ranking my Christmas songs, which is yeah. a whole other podcast that we can do another day. Oh, my I, God. I, I think you should. I think you should. <laughs> now I just have a picture of the outlaw looking through. What are the new Christmas songs oh my this God. year? All the time. Listen, <laughs> the outlaw's not just the rough exterior. You know, it's got a little, it's got a little squish, a squishy center, and I love Christmas for that and finding the songs and discovering. That. It's one of my favorite things to do. You know, when you take a little bit of a break from everything, getting to lie on the couch with the laptop on your head and and or on your chest and listening to the uh, music in your head from the uh, whatever you find there is great. I love it. And the number one Christmas song in two thousand three is. <laughs> Billy Mack and he gets the phone call from the radio station and I love by the way the cuts to the manager who's been with him on this journey all along and they ask Billy how he's going to celebrate and he says kind of what he said at the radio station uh, either I could behave like a real rock and roll loser and get drunk with my fat manager <laughs> or when I hang up I'll be flooded by invitations to a large number of glamorous parties and the phone rings and it's Elton John inviting him to the party. And I love that the manager smiles and kind of walks out because he, it's, his work is done. Like his mission in life was to get Billy Mack back. Mm. And now he's done, you know. And it's later. He's at his apartment. And who comes over but 
Billy Mack. You're supposed to be Elm Jones. Yeah, well, I, I was there for a minute or two, and then, then I had an epiphany. Can I tell you that this scene totally makes me cry every single time? Oh, It totally does. Okay. It's so sweet what happens. I, I realize that Christmas is, is the time to be with the people you love. Right. And I realize that as dire chance and, and, and faithful cock-up would have it, here I am, mid-50s. And without knowing it, I've gone and spent most of my adult life with a, with a chubby employee. <laughs> and, and much as it grieves me to say it, it, it might be that the people I love is, in fact, you. What's so great about it is that it would be hard for me to say those lines without being saccharine and sweet. Mm. But Bill Nye has a way of performing it that's so that character that's hilarious. He floats it. He I realize was you. Yeah, you know, he doesn't. It's still he's still struggling with how to be honest in that because he can be honest about the crass stuff. Right. It's the emotional exactly. stuff that he can't quite a hundred percent be fully honest about. So he had to kind of come on his had to go on his journey rather to come to this conclusion so that well and, if, he could and I think what it. makes it work yeah. is that as he's saying it, he's still on the journey. Like when he gets to the yes. end of the statement, right. it's almost a question. Like he's <laughs> he's almost presenting it out as so I had this thought and it's weird, but I guess yeah. you and I are like a family. Like that's <laughs> that's what makes it sweet is because he's he's this is a new discovery for him as well. He was yeah. shocked that he was at the party and didn't want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love Joe's response. He says, well, this is a surprise. Yeah. Ten minutes at Elton John, you're as gay as a maple. <laughs> um, which is funny that Joe kind of jokes it off. No, look, I'm, I'm serious here. I left Elton's where there were a hefty number of half-naked chicks with their mouths open in order to hang out with you. And it's so funny. And this is where I actually am glad we turned this into a short film because... The story arc, as you described it, Michael, is so perfectly clear. He sets up what his goals are, what his values are, realizes that that exact thing that he said he didn't want is, in fact, what's important to him. It's a terrible, terrible mistake, Chubbs. But you turn out to be the fucking love of my life. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Michael um, will do that to me at 90 years old. I know he will. I've done, I've done that to you for the past... <laughs> I've been doing it to you for the past 20 years. Why am I going to stop now? I'm just going to keep going. Every year. It, every year. It, at least your hugs are not nearly as awkward. <laughs> as that's true. One. And I won't make a gay joke, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, probably probably not a good idea to make that to me. Um, yeah, no, I, I do think it is really sweet. And I love that... I do love that one of the storylines in this is just a very platonic love that I do actually yeah. think it's really yeah. sweet that this is like, this is something like there are people in your life that uh, might not be the romantic partner that you always dreamed of, but they've mm. been with you through every single thing and will be with you through every single thing, which is, I think what makes this particular story out of all of them um, kind of sweet and unique. Absolutely. 100%. And because it is their platonic love, the last slide of the scene is let's get pissed and watch porn. <laughs> Which, by the way, the dudes watching porn together is a thing I've never, ever understood in my yeah, life. Ditto. Well, as someone who, out of the three of us, has probably watched more gay porn, it's a big thing in gay porn. Gay, so gay porn is, well, like, it's like, it's the, yeah, so I think. I'm a the big assumption on my part. But I like, see, the, see idea, the, the idea that straight guys get together and watch porn is definitely something I have seen 
uh, right. in gay mm. porn, but it always does kind of like, I was like, is that something that straight guys do? Gay guys do it. Do straight guys do that? Oh yeah. Yes. That's the rite of passage. Apparently when you were, uh, at least when I was growing up, it was a rite of passage to be able to be invited by the older boys to go sit down and watch porn at 12 or 13 years old. It was what? weird, but I never, yeah, I never had an, like it's a Virginia grow up. I don't know if other kind of states have a different, but like that's what the, it was for me. And I never, like my cousins did it. And I, who were a little bit older, they would have me over or we'd be out there and then like sneak up into the room and put it on. And then you'd hear the parents coming and eject it immediately and pretend like you're just talking about whatever. So it was that kind of weirdness. Um, but I, I like Steve, I, I hated it, never had an interest in it. I would walk out. I think the first time I saw that, I like threw up. And so it was just weird, just weird on so many levels. So, so, so uh, I, my freshman year in college was in an all male dorm at Berkeley, which is called Bowles Hall, which is this famous old storied building. It looks like a castle. And uh, it's sort of like, because it has this, a lot of old traditions. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like half fraternity, half dorm. Mm -hmm. And I swear to God in the main room, in the lounge at Bowles Hall one night, they showed deep throat with <laughs> like, 50 guys college age watching it and i walked in and sat down and went this is yeah. the weirdest thing i've ever seen and walked out i don't understand it's true that is a true story it's it's one of those things because like i've i've this is this question has come up before and it's one of the things anytime i ask straight guys i kind of get a similar answer to you guys which you're like yeah this is definitely a thing i mean i've never done it and so I'm like, I've never heard, I, <laughs> to never, this day, I've yeah. literally never heard every straight person's like, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's a thing that happens. And, uh, you know, it's in the, it's a part of whatever. Well, have you, no, no, yeah. I never did it. I never did it. And I'm like, well, I, I've yet to meet the straight person that has admitted to sitting down with his buddies to watch porn. So we'll see. If anyone yeah. out there has done it, let us know. <laughs> I feel like you're. I feel like you're choosing the right people to be friends with. I feel like so. <laughs> so apropos of this film's R rating, I believe this is the most discussion of pornography in all of our Christmas episodes. Oh, well, we're not done. We haven't even gotten to Martin Freeman and Joanna Page yet. So yeah. Well, hey, do you want to go? Maybe we should go talk about them next. <laughs> I said I was all having right. trouble figuring out the order. So let's go to, to well, let, let's just finish this off. Yeah, is yeah. that a month? Is that he does in fact perform naked? <laughs> he said, he said, as we wrapped oh, up Jesus. the porn conversation. Uh, uh, okay. He, well, and well, the next thing let's is him stripping yeah. and performing naked on television. Um, it's a month later. Manager Joe goes to pick up Billy Mack at the airport, who has a beautiful woman on his arm. He says, Hello, Daisy. This one's Greta. Hello, Greta. Well, and it just does kind of underscore for this story what's important to Billy Mac. Like this is not a this is not Billy Mac wanting to find romance in his life. Like he is right. perfectly happy at the end of his Christmas tale mm -hmm. to have a woman that. Her name isn't even that important. Uh, she probably won't be around very long, but him and his manager are BFFs for life. You know what's interesting? I'm glad we're going to go to John and Judy next because in a way, these are the two most wholesome love stories surrounded by the most filthy circumstances. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Be and it's because John and Judy, we go, we're on a movie set and we our first sight of Martin Freeman and Joanna Page is he's standing behind her fully clothed, mm -hmm. dry humping her. <laughs> um, but by the way, I hear that I've heard that many, many, many people literally have no idea what the hell is going on in their story because oh, they really? don't know. Well, because they don't know that there are movie, these people They're that standing. are movie stand-ins. Yeah. Um, and the fact is, I don't understand what the hell's happening in this story. No movie stand-ins <laughs> are ever asked to do what these two people are doing. It is so insane. I, I don't know. 
I mean, I just am always curious as to like, I'm always curious as to like what this movie is really about. Like, <laughs> like the, in this storyline, like this movie within a movie, I'm like, all right, so wait, you've been hired. Okay. You're a stand in. And oh, like, I love, it's the moment where he's like, we need you to take your top off. So the light hits your breasts. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> what's happening here? I- I think that happens. It, they're stand-ins. They're, I mean, he's got to get the light in. He's got to get everything squared away correctly. I um, mean, and that makes so, sense. So you know? to be clear, there are such things as movie stand-ins. Yeah. To be clear, they do cast people with the same skin coloring and similar hair, right. similar body type. They put them in the same costumes. By the way, you know my favorite stand-in story? That there was an entire Cosby family on the Cosby show that was their stand-ins. Wow. That would go and do you know who played Bill Cosby wearing all of those sweaters? His brother? Samuel Jackson for years. <laughs> oh, it was wow. Cosby stand-in on the Cosby, Cosby show. Jesus. Yeah. Um which wow. I would love to see footage of. Um but and, and yes they, they do have people porn? They're shooting a porn. No. No. I don't sure? think they are. Are you sure? I Pretty think sure. there's I, I've always been under the impression that they're shooting a porn, which is why they're constantly in states of undress and being, and as they're, because in essence, it's a symbol. The more they take off the clothes, the more, the closer they get as human beings. No, that part's eventually. true. Yeah, that's but what like, I'm saying. I mean, but Martin I, Freeman's talking about how he was a stand-in for, uh, yeah, Brad, for Brad Pitt on seven yeah. years in Tibet. Like, it right. seems like this is a more legit film film situation um but yeah but i don't know but to to the point that is never really made clear so we we could argue this for the rest of the podcast and we're not going to get any clarity on it i just always thought it was a point so i could tell you what what the director says yeah which is that i get clarity on it which is that this was (laughs) richard curtis yeah yeah richard curtis says this is a very erotic expensive period piece oh fair enough all right yeah so, so a sort of bodice, because you look at that set, it's an expensive set, You're right? you know? And a lot of crew. Could you take the top off this time? Lighting and camera need to know when we're actually going to see the, um, the, the nipples and, and when we're not. Yes, okay. And what's so funny is the conversation they're having while they're miming these sex acts and being naked is completely benign. Yeah. I thought I was never going to make it here today. The traffic oh, was just... Unbelievable. And it is just your basic... I'm awkwardly flirting with the attractive person at work, mm-hmm. trying to get up the courage to ask them on a date. Right. That that's all that's happening, except that they're naked and they take their clothes off and he's behind her. And Tony, the director, who we're gonna meet in another of our short films, <laughs> who's played by Abdul Salas, uh, says and, and Jerry says if you could just put your hands on her breast. All right, okay, yeah. Is that right? Yes, yeah, fine. And I love that Martin Freeman, you know, warms his hands up because it's very nice. And it's then they continue <laughs> as he fondles her to talk about traffic. It's junction 13 is just murder, isn't oh. it? Total gridlock this morning. Yeah, I mean, I just love that they cover all. It's like it's traffic, it's the weather, it's politics. Like it's like they are really just going through all of the most uh, boring and safe topics as they are in this very like highly sexualized uh, situation, and that they're both just ridiculously sweet and nice and polite. Yeah, yeah. He's nervous and awkward. She's much more. Like she, the way she takes her clothes off, it's no big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Do boom, boom. And and in that that's situation. The job. So yeah, it's a job. Exactly. Uh, and once again, it just conveys how the Brits are not hung up with the kind of shit we're hung up with. And so like sex is not a big deal. It's nudity's not a big deal. It just is what it is. And let's move on. You know. Well, it I all all three of us have been actors in plays at one time or other. Have you ever been acting in a play where there was uh nudity? No. 
I, I was, have. I was in an Adam and Eve play where I was Adam, and then there was a brief period of time where they thought we were going to be naked, mm-hmm. but then oh, we yeah. ended up doing like skin colored like sweatsuits, which really yeah. was just horrible. So yeah. I, at this point, when I think back to it, I kind of wish I had been naked. <laughs> so I was in a play. It was a, an equity waiver play. And A, there was like full frontal nudity on stage. Hello. At B, it was 12 people in the play, male and female. And there was only one dressing room. So we we're all changing in front of each other mm. anyway. And there's a certain point where professionals, <laughs> which yeah. I barely would call myself, like you're naked, you're naked. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. Oh, yeah. At least it, it, in some circumstances. I'll tell you one weird thing about breaking this into short films. What's particularly weird is that they're still doing the same thing a week later. Yeah. They've been working on this film and they're actually doing this for over a month. Mm. (laughs) They're just showing up and being naked on a set. (laughs) And this next one, she is on top of him naked. He is naked underneath and they're talking about the prime minister. They're talking politics. So what do you reckon to our new prime minister then? Oh, I like him. I can't understand why he's not married, though. And then he finally, John finally manages to say, I have to say, Judy, this is a real pleasure. It's lovely to find someone I can actually chat to. Thank you. Uh, you Which the contrast between them in a sex position naked and him being happy he found someone that he could chat with so sweet and lovely. And I think it actually, and this is Richard Curtis, I mean, I would imagine, uh, he is making a point, uh, which is that, you know, we do live in this world where people have sex a lot and they don't actually have a connection. You know, Mm. you can have like, you can have a physical relationship with somebody and you don't actually really connect with them. Um, And some people think that that's love and can go on for years and not realize that they're not really connecting with that person. And so here you have two people that are in an extremely intimate position physically for the entirety of the movie. But the thing that really connects them, the thing that Martin Freeman actually gets excited about is he can actually have a conversation with the implication being that he's been on sets a lot of times doing expensive erotic uh, (laughs) uh, period pieces. Um, And he's been doing, you know, that he's had lots of people where he's been naked with them and been doing stuff with them. And it just hasn't really been fulfilling. And so I think in this way, Richard Curtis is using the, uh, the stand-ins, literally to be a stand-in for people that kind of uh, get confused about the difference between a physical relationship and an actual emotionally connected relationship. I love the way you put that. I think that's exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's now four weeks later. (laughs) They're still doing this. She's uh, miming a blowjob, and he has finally gotten up the courage to ask her out. While she's doing a blowjob. (laughs) Sorry to be a a bit forward and all that, but... You don't fancy going for a Christmas drink, do you? I mean, nothing, you know, nothing implied at all. Just um, maybe go see something Christmassy or, or, or something. Uh, obviously, if, if you don't want to, you don't have to. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm rambling now. <laughs> then cut to the reverse where she is straddling his head. <laughs> and, and he's so happy that she said yes to the date. Yeah, that is really great. Normally, I'm really shy about this sort of thing. It takes me ages to get the courage up, so thank you. So four weeks of nudity is actually (laughs) faster for him to ask someone out on a date than normally. And now for the first time we're going to see them, it's probably Christmas Eve. They're fully dressed. They're on a date. He's saying goodnight at the door. And there's the moment of, are they going to kiss? Are they not going to kiss? And he leans in. It's a really, really sweet kiss. And then she says, All I want for Christmas is you. Yeah. And you know what you think would normally happen would be she would invite him inside for sex. 
but she doesn't. And he doesn't expect her to. I don't think there's any expectation that he would go outside. And the cute jump after she goes inside where he jumps from the top step down to the street, Martin Freeman is so adorable. (laughs) It's a month later. We're at the airport. They happen to run into their old AD, Tony, and he asks what they're doing here. And Judy holds up her finger with a ring on it. Now, Mm. did they just get married or did they just get engaged? Oh, good question. It I, was kind, I mean, I always kind of read it as they were like heading off on their honeymoon, but it could yeah, be not what I at all. Too. Like I always thought like, oh, they got married really quickly and they're off on their honeymoon. Yeah. That's what I thought too. And here's my question for you. Did they ever have premarital sex? Ooh, I oh, say I no. no. Yeah, I think, I think no, too. no too. I think they were naked in every intimate position possible yeah. in their job, but in their relationship, they, they saved it until they were married. Yeah. Um, you did skip over one thing, which is always just it always is one of the little irks that I have with the movie. And I think that Richard Curtis does an amazing job uh, editing all of these things together. But mm. it is very odd to me that th- that we see the scene where they finish their date and she says good night. They kiss. She goes inside. Martin Freeman goes downstairs. And then we go to the concert for the kids at the school oh, yeah. where mm. they are both at. Oh, so, are they? Oh, right. Right. I think that the intention when the whole thing mm-hmm. was written was probably, well, the date is Martin Freeman takes her to this school concert yeah, and then they go probably. home. But because of the pacing of the movie and where everything goes and because as soon as you get out of the concert, you kind of go into the uh, Colin Firth story and the Sam at the airport story. And there's not really a space for that was a great date. We sort of. I'm assuming end up kind of seeing the end of their date before we actually see the date. And Mm. when you watch the movie, the first 30 times, you probably don't notice it, but it's around (laughs) 32 or 35 where I was like, wait a second. Are they wearing the same clothes? I have to go look. That's a good question. Okay. Well, this is uh, behind the scenes of the cinephiles. I texted both of uh, my friends here to tell them I wouldn't be ready. I needed 15 more minutes because I was trying to figure this out. Part of what I couldn't figure out is the timing's all weird. Because it's like, <laughs> wait, is it Christmas Eve now? But then when is this happen? Wait, right. it kind of goes that that last two or three days before the end don't actually make sense time wise. No. No. Um, uh, it, um, but it make, it does make sense emotionally, which is why when you watch the movie, yeah. it all feels right. It's only when you start trying to actually really focus and be like, okay, so wait, when did this happen? And you're like, wait a minute, right. How long did you take Portuguese class? What hell? What is yeah. this? Two, three days? What did you do? Well, how long did it take you to get to the airport? And you know, like all of these things don't, which seem to happen in like an hour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like it's like Game of Thrones. How do you traverse this landmass in a couple of days? Uh, I don't think so. The Back one then? that took you months to travel the first yeah. time. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Let's go to a new short film, which I'm calling The Best Man. Oh, yeah. Mark, Peter, and Juliet. And but begin... is he the best man? I think that's a well, better This is going to be a big, <laughs> big question. We're at a wedding. Uh, we have Peter, who is Chiwetel Ejiofor, and Andrew Lincoln, uh, Peter and Mark. Uh, and the first thing Peter says is No surprises. No surprises. And then we get a joke that's just <laughs> about how apparently Mark set up some Brazilian prostitutes at the stag party that turned out to be men. <laughs> Yeah, I always, I always love a easy below the belt trans joke. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. definitely a couple in this where you're just like, oh yeah, this was when it was still okay to just like use trans people as the punchline. That's yeah. that's cute. Well, you know, I mean, it's the same thing when we get to all the fat jokes about Natalie. You oh know what god. I mean? Like, oh my god, like there's like the yeah. the joke that makes fun of a person or makes fun of a group of people. That is not a thing that flies so well in 2021. You know? Well, and it's actually really funny. I had this whole conversation with someone about this joke where it was the, well, is this, an, is this appropriate? Is it not appropriate? And the, my, the person I was talking to was like, well, if you were had a bachelor party and a bunch of uh, uh, strippers came and they ended up being men, you probably wouldn't be happy about it. And I'm like, oh, 100% accurate. I get that. I was like, but there's a way to make the joke that is more look, they were all very lovely. It just wasn't what I was looking for. You know, it's like there's a right. way that you can still have the joke without it just being sort of that like, uh, that feels a little bit like you were just kicking somebody when uh, when their entire um, group was down. But yeah. but other than that, wedding time. <laughs> but, but fortunately, there aren't going to be any surprises at this wedding. Uh, Kira Knightley, who plays Juliet, enters in a gorgeous, gorgeous shot coming down the aisle, which is Richard Curtis's favorite shot of the film, mm. or coming out of focus. She She's an absolutely stunning human. Um, okay. <laughs> well, I find her to be an absolutely stunning mm. human. Fair enough. Um, and there's the ceremony and after the ceremony, a thing happens, mm. which was inspired by Richard Curtis going to Jim Henson's funeral, where at the oh, end wow. of the funeral, Frank Oz brought up Kermit and sang a song as Kermit. Oh my God. And then all the Muppeteers in the audience all lifted up their Muppets and all sang together walking, walking. And then big bird came in walking down the aisle. That's the inspiration for what happens. Wow. Here. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. You will 1000% really? cry. Oh my God. And we see that uh, some other people like that we're going to meet later, like Jamie Colin Firth and Sarah, Laura linear in the audience. And as they turn to walk back down the aisle, we hear. And what I love the way they do this is that it's piece. Each piece is like, oh my God, I can't believe you did this. Did you do this? Uh, no. And we know that it was Mark, the best man, who did it. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Oh. <laughs> There's nothing you can say that can't be sung. There's nothing you can say that you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. And then the strings and the organ are there, and then the horns jump up, and then the electric guitar. It is a fantastic scene. And I part of me just went, man, how much money does Mark have? <laughs> like this is not a cheap thing to do for your yeah. friend. Richard Curtis is in the in that show. He's the trombone player. In, oh, in nice. The, he puts himself in his own favorite shot. I love that. And, um, 
this to, to show how much I love love actually, um, I actually did do this at my sister's wedding. <laughs> oh, at my sister's at my sister's first wedding. Uh, so not not her second one, but at her first wedding, uh, I officiated it. And uh, because we all liked love actually so much, our friend Sarah mm-hmm. helped me. And we uh, were going back to Gainesville, Florida. So we actually reached out to the acapella group at the University of Florida and we hired That's them. Right. And we planted a bunch like I think it was about 12 college students who nobody else at the wedding knew uh, planted them in the wedding. And as soon as I uh, pronounced them man and wife, um, they stood up. We didn't have any band. We didn't have the band. We didn't get to do the full love, actually. (laughs) But we did have everybody stand up and sing the song. And uh, I was quite proud of myself. You should be. I I, when I heard that that's what you did at this wedding, because this is the one that I didn't get to go to. I was really bummed to have missed the wedding. That sounded awesome. God, I remember that. That's right. Jesus. And uh, we cut to uh, the reception. Kira Knightley is dancing. And the best man, Mark, is watching with his video camera. And a woman sits down next to him and asks, Do you love him? <laughs> what? No, I, I just thought I'd ask the blunt question in case it was the right one and you needed someone to talk to about it. And no one had ever asked you, so you'd never been able to talk about it, even though you might have wanted to. <laughs> I love Laura Linney so much. Mm. She's so great and so great in this movie. And the way she got cast is the director kept talking to the casting director and saying, we need a Laura Linney type. And they brought in all these British actresses to her Laura Linney types. And finally the casting director went, have you ever thought about asking Laura Linney if she wants to do it? He's like, no. I mean, she's American. It doesn't make sense. And then they went, maybe we should call her. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I always wish I always wish uh, every time I watch this movie and I think it would solve some of the problems that we are about to get into. I think him being in love with his best friend is actually the better story. Mm, I actually think if he, I think mm. if he wasn't in love with Kira Knightley and he was in love uh, with is yeah. it Andrew Mark. Wait, what's his what are the names? Peter. I, Peter. Peter. If he is actually in love with Peter. And he had been his best friends for a year and he was secretly in love with him. Like, I mean, obviously, from a personal standpoint, I can relate to that story a lot more. That's been part of my life. But I think that uh, I think it makes it way more interesting and it makes the challenges that he's trying to deal with in trying to not deal with it um, a lot more uh, justifiable and sympathetic than I think they tend to end up when we get to the end of this tale. It would solve all the problems Mm -hmm. because then it's an impossible love. It yeah. can't happen. Hmm. He he knows it can't happen. It's not that it could happen, but he it, yeah, because that, he's not being a jerk. You know, he, he's just in love with that guy. In the oh same right, way. you mean if if they went that route, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah if they had gone that yeah. route. And what's interesting too well, is that I don't know. We're three guys talking about it, right? How would a woman feel if the best friend was like trying to take her husband away from her or expressing well, his love? Well, the difference poss- is, let me I mean, finish. Let me finish, and possibly endangering that relationship and that new marriage. I don't know. Well, because I don't think – well, again, there's plenty of ways to slice this story and uh, there – of course. But I don't think that you tell the story of I'm trying to con- – I'm trying to steal my straight best friend away from his wife. I think you deal with the I have this best friend who I know it's never going to happen because he is straight and I am not. Right. And, and I But I am it. in love with him and I've always wanted to do these things for like, – like there's a way to tell it where it's not the – Nobody's trying to steal anybody from anywhere. And I think and I think to Richard Curtis's credit, I don't think that Mark at the end of this movie is trying to steal Kira Knightley away. Right. And I think that would be the justification. But I think it gets a little bit muddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a big difference between 
all straight people and someone where it's just the, 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 the Mark Peter relationship. If Mark was gay is no. never going to happen. It's not actually possible to ever happen. Well, it unless is there's like, tequila involved, but that's another story for, oh, all right. Right. Fair, fair. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, what I love too, about what Laura Linney's character does is she actually has put her finger directly on what's going on. Mm-hmm. She just didn't have it exactly right. And then right. we get a very cute little bit of writing about the worst DJ in history. And it all depends on the next song. And they go, yep, he's the worst. <laughs> um, we're in the strange erotic art gallery <laughs> where, because again, this movie is this mix of eroticism and Christmas. So you have these naked blue guys with Christmas hats. <laughs> it's very odd. And uh, this is where Mark works. And we hear that uh, Juliet wants to talk to him, that Peter says, you know, be nice. And she gets on the phone and basically says, I've just tried the wedding video and it's a complete disaster. It's come out all blue and wibbly. I'm sorry. And I remember you filming a lot in the day and I just wondered if I could look at your stuff. Later, he's back at his place. He's watching this uh, aging rock star um, (laughs) do a terrible Christmas song. The bad granddad of rock and roll here at 10.30. Do not switch off. And there is Kira Knightley at the door with a peace offering pastry. I know you've never particularly warmed to me. No, don't don't argue. We've never got friendly. But I just wanted to say I hope that can change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so obvious that he's not sincere. And she sees that he's not sincere. Mm-hmm. Of course, she has the exact wrong interpretation of what that means. And she asks about the video. And he's like, oh, I probably overtaped the West Wing. But I'm sure we couldn't find it. Of course, she finds it right away. <laughs> which he should have hid the video, you know? Because mm-hmm. she said, I want to come get that video. And then he puts it in, she sits down, and the first shot is a gorgeous close-up of her. And the, the transition, as she watches shot after shot after shot of her, is amazing yeah. to see. Yeah. Um, by the way, they, the way they did this is when they shot the wedding, which they had to shoot, uh, Richard Curtis just had one of his assistants with a camcorder. Just He said, just shoot Kira Knightley. Huh. Um, and so that's all he says is all just stuff that the assistant shot. Wow. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. I don't know if I 100% believe it because some of these shots are really, really amazing. Maybe, really maybe, it, was, maybe one, right? it was a very talented assistant. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I mean, look at this cast. There are future leads of massive oh, yeah. projects all over this cast. Yeah. So, you know, wouldn't surprise me that he found some great assistant director who went on to be a, a fantastic director himself or herself. So there's this whole video that Mark has cut together of just shots of Juliet. Yeah. John, do you want to know who Richard Curtis was referencing in this sequence? Ooh. Like who? What film? Shit. Yeah. Tell me. One of his favorite movies is Cinema Paradiso. Ah, son of a V. The shot, of course, of her. Yes. All the kissing. It's the kissing that was cut together. At the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. That is what he's thinking about. Oh, that's brilliant. And, and it goes through the entire reception, ends with them sailing away on a on a boat, the close-up of her, and it goes to static, and there's a long pause, because she now she knows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she looks and she says, But you never talk to me. You always talk to Peter. You don't like me. <laughs> and, and the awkwardness of watching Mark through this whole thing seeing his heart just exposed in this manner, which I also go, I, you know, Mark's problematic, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, all the stuff that he's doing, like just co- constantly filming the face of his uh, best friend's now wife mm. 
or doing the love, love, love thing when what he's really saying is, I love you. Mm -hmm. That's his love letter to his best friend's now wife. I hope it's useful. Don't show it around too much. It needs a bit of editing. Look, I've got to get to a lunch. And then he starts to exit, and he turns and says, It's a self-preservation thing, you see. What does he mean by that? Well, because the reason he treats her badly or to, or is a rule to her is to keep her away. Well, we just talked about with Shane, the same thing at the end of Shane, right? Steve, he says, says I can't stay anymore. The gu- you know, the valley is quiet now. The guns are silent, blah, blah, blah. I got to go no matter how much you may want me to stay. I can't change. That's him keeping the distance to that life. And I think what he's doing here, and and I've done it, where you, when you're a little not emotionally mature, and we've all gone through those stages, it's you're just not sure how to treat somebody that you care about and you you don't want to be nice to them or make give them any, because it hurts you too much to not be with them. And so that happens in life. And I think that's what he's saying about self-preservation. It is, I have to like not be nice to you or not make an effort to be cool to you because I care about you so much that I'm going to slip up and say it, or it's going to hurt me even more to create a strong bond with you. I think it's going to hurt me even more to create a strong bond and not be able to consummate it fully in terms of love and exchange of feelings, you know? So that's, that's yeah, that's, that's what I think is going on yeah. too. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. but he still filmed her, which is really dirty. It, it yeah. is like, I do want to say like the creep level of that video <laughs> is through the roof. Like I get that like in the moment you're like, Oh, he loved her so much and he just whatever. But like the, the creep factor of like, so not only did you film her for the entirety of the wedding and only her, you (laughs) then went home and you edited it together to just be the shots of her that you liked the most. And and watched it repeatedly. When do you watch this video? Exactly. Like, Like it's, it gets very like Mark is, a very creepy guy. Well, and this is the, this is the weird thing about we have now achieved the weirdness of the movie, which mm. is that I think because these people are so attractive and they're so charming in a way, and their stories are told with beautiful cinematography and great movie, that you don't initially go, "Oh my god, this guy is a stalker." You don't. That's not your reaction. You just go, "What a lovely, sad love story," you know. I don't think it's just that. I think that is all true. But I think part of what makes love actually work is that even in the most problematic storyline, and I'll put Mm -hmm. this one up there as one of them. I I actually don't know that it's the most problematic story for me, but it's top tier. Mm -hmm. But there's a kernel of truth in it that we all deep down understand. Because even even though the execution of his creeper video in his creeper apartment is like very odd and everything that happens, the unrequited love the mm-hmm. my friend is dating someone who i really wish i had met them first or i yeah. am secretly in love with this person like we've all felt it everyone has been there so mm-hmm. the details and the specifics make it very weird and awkward but i think the reason that it kind of sort of sails through is that we all sort of instinctually every one of us watches the storyline and every one of us goes i've been mark and Kira Knightley was fill in the blank. Can I defend Mark a little bit? Or st- is it Mark? Is that his name? Yeah, Mark. Mark. Yeah. I'd like to throw in a little slight defense in that, yeah, I, I think what Michael said is on point, even in the most weird, and you could look at him as a total stalker, total creeper. You could. 
But he's coming from a place of like where he does have real affection for her, real love for her. It isn't like I want to steal her so I can have sex with her. I want to steal her because I, I hate my best friend or I secretly envy my best friend and I want to take something from him. It's not nefarious, right, from that place. It is from a place, though, of a little bit emotionally immature in that he has an obsession with her uh, and videotapes, which I think is the step too far. And then and it's the videos you said, Mike. Yeah, he's probably sitting there at night, like with wine, watching it over and over again. But it's harmless in his mind because he's not acting on it, right? Um, but in the end, when you look at the totality, and especially when he shows up with the cards, then there's actions here that I think can threaten um, any kind of sympathy you might have for Mark, for sure. So, well, and the other thing not that is I'm excusing point- his behavior. I want to make that clear. right, of course. One of the other things is that it also points out another theme within this film. Mm-hmm is that the shallowness and the um, surface of attraction is that this is a person he is in love with who he's never had a conversation with. You know, right. He has right. built no relationship with her. It's entirely. It's an excellent point, Steve. Yeah. He's created um, a fantastic relationship with her. No, no, we mind. don't see he's been with yeah. her and Peter all the time. And so he has seen a lot of her personality, right. Right, right, right. which we, but we don't see that. There's some other ones where there's, even there's less, you know. Yeah. Um. And but but so question: You guys have both either acted in stuff, in plays, done rehearsals, had shots, and I know Mike, you've directed voiceover. Have you ever been in a situation where someone says you you did three or four takes and none of them were quite right, and then someone says just do something silly, just do a silly take to mm-hmm. kind of get rid of the you you both seen that sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, I assume? yeah, yeah. The shot of him walking outside and then turning back and then going and then turning back was the silly take. <laughs> and Andrew Lincoln cannot believe that they put this in the movie. Well, and you can't talk about that without the two best parts of it. That The first part, and it's not the same take because it's when he walks out, but the dramatic zip up of his early 2000s sweater <laughs> that is super dramatic to the Dido music, which is the most ridiculous zip yeah. up of a sweater ever. It's like, it is like all of his emo feelings wrapped up in <laughs> zipping up of the sweater. And then when he does that take where he's walking away and he kind of like turns back and then he dumb, and then he has that freak out is yeah. the elderly gentleman yeah. with his Christmas bags who gets scared <laughs> shitless and jumps out of the way that makes me laugh so hard every <laughs> single time I watch this movie. So true. it's Christmas Eve. Julia and Peter are watching, I think Billy Mac on TV and there's a doorbell and she goes to open the door and he ho- and there is Mark holding up a sign that says, say it's carolers. No, he says, say it's Carol Singers. Carol because Singers. every year the joke is, who the <laughs> hell is Carol Singers? <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what would happen if Peter had opened the door? Uh, good question. Um, good question. Did he have a plan for this? He's got <laughs> nope. big, big cards in his hands. Yeah, right. And now we get. <laughs> wait, wait, stop! I'd love it if the cards on the other side are something else for Peter. That would be hilarious. <laughs> like, hey, dude, hey, dude, don't tell her I'm here. <laughs> when are we meeting for? Yeah, a post Christmas brunch. <laughs> you know how I don't get along with your wife. When are we gonna have some dude time? <laughs> I miss you, my God. <laughs> um, and this scene <laughs> is either lovely and sweet and romantic, or just totally totally uncool and horrible yeah yeah. well and regardless of which one it is it's also one of the most iconic scenes from this movie like people who have people who have never seen this movie know this scene it's been referenced in snl it's been referenced in other movies and tv shows like this whole concept of going up having everything written 
pulling them away one by one. Like it is truly this. This is the moment of the movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. And his cards say, after while playing Silent Night on his boombox. With any luck, by next year, I'll be going out with one of these girls. And we see pictures of hot women. But for now, let me say, without hope or agenda. Let's pause on without (laughs) hope or agenda. Does he have no hope and no agenda? Uh, So I think this is where I think this is where you're kind of people put their own spin on it, depending on who they are and how they see the world and whatever, which is I for the purposes of this movie and what this story is trying to express I think he actually genuinely has no hope or agenda. But if you don't believe that, then he's a super shitty person. Like you like there is the you really genuinely are like, I feel like I need to say this and then we're done. Mm -hmm. Or you're like, he's really this is his last swing at the fences. And if he can get her, he'll take her. Mm -hmm. I think this is I think he's done. I think this is a true. I think he's being completely honest because, as I said earlier, the theme of this movie is when you tell the truth. I won't say you get what you want, but things work out the right way. And so I think that he is 100%. These cards are the truth, but that's just my interpretation of it. So I, uh, well, John, let me ask you, what's your interpretation before I combine with the cards? Uh, Does he have a hope or agenda? I think if she hadn't come over, the cards would have never happened. And I don't mean like I'm blaming her. I mean, more like he got in, he, at least she didn't freak out. She didn't stop talking to him. She didn't say, get the fuck away from me. Don't talk to me or Peter ever again she really took it in as a kind of sweet gesture from him that he he had feelings for her. So I'm sure, as you said, you find Kira Knightley incredibly attractive. I'm sure this is something she's dealt with her entire life. Guys who like have obsessions with her or find her attractive as the character, right? And I'm sure in real life as well. So she plays this and, and so she receives it well. She doesn't, you know, she could have easily been like, get the hell out of here. What are you doing? Or stop him mid. So this was his way of saying, I'm going to get this out. And then when it's over, after I get it out, I can say everything I've wanted to say to her. And then after that, I can like put it to bed, have closure with it and move on. And I think that's in a messed up way. I think that's his intention, whether he should have done it or not. Certainly you can debate. But I think if I'm giving the character the benefit of the doubt, I think that's what he was doing. So um, I think in terms of hope and agenda that I'm in the middle because I 100 percent believe that he believes he has no hope and no agenda. Right. But I also believe that he is, your brain thinks of things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, if he if he truly deep down had zero hope and zero, zero agenda, then he wouldn't be doing this. But yeah. I think that he believes that he doesn't have a hope or agenda. And then he says, again, just because it's Christmas and at Christmas you tell the truth, a thing I've never heard. <laughs> to me, you are perfect. And my wasted heart will love you until you look like this and shows like a desiccated, mummified body. <laughs> and she laughs. And his last card says, Merry Christmas. And she mouths, Merry Christmas. And he gives the goofiest little two thumbs up and he walks away. Yeah. And then she runs out after him and kisses him on the lips, which is also fucked up. Yeah. That's the moment that I was like, because uh, everybody comes after him in this movie, but her running out after him and kissing him, that's not a good look. Yeah. And I think this is, so I think like 
when you look at the, and I think it's kind of cool that we're doing it the way that we're doing it, where you kind of just break yeah. them all out and like, let's just look at this movie. Yeah. Because I think what, because I think John is right. I think her come, showing up at his apartment and then mm-hmm. making this discovery is sort of what leads to that scene. I think he probably would have just carried on doing what he was doing, but what he was doing wasn't great. And right. ultimately what he was doing was being horrible to her for no mm-hmm. reason of her own fault. Like he was just right, being a dick. Right. And also what he was doing was probably going to ruin his friendship with his best friend. Eventually, eventually yeah, his best friend is like, dude, you are a dick to my wife. Like this, like right. what the, what he was doing was not sustainable for his, his own emotional uh, well-being and mental health or for his relationship with either of them. Well, yeah. And so I think when she discovers the truth, it leads him to say, let me clarify and be very honest with you in a way that kind of puts this to bed so that we can all move on is the intention of what this right. storyline is. But yeah. I think it does get muddled in the, well, are you really just being hundred percent honest about that? And when she comes out and kisses him, maybe if she had kissed him on the forehead Maybe if yeah, she had cheek? just kissed him on the yeah. cheek, it would yeah, have yeah. felt differently. But the full kiss on the lips, you're kind of like, all right, I feel really bad for uh, Peter. Peter, Peter yeah. sitting inside. Peter. Well, and, and it's the and it's a kiss on the lips with the lapel grab, yeah. which makes it is more serious. And the thing is, you said that you know Peter's can go like you're really being a dick to my wife. To be clear, he's being a dick to Peter. Yeah, like obsessing over someone's spouse and photographing them and watching the video of someone else's wife, that is not cool. Like, you know, even if he's not a stalker who's stalking this woman, which isn't cool, it's also like, this is your best friend. This is your best friend's wife. Like, what the fuck are you doing? I do love, by the way, uh, Juliet goes back inside and Mark walking towards camera says, Enough. Enough now. What do you think that means? He's done. He's, he's, He's said what he needs to say. He's gotten his closure. He got the kiss. That's it. That you're done now. Let's move on. And I'm sure these are internal conversations. He it's it's a it's a quick character moment because I think it shows us that he has had internal conversations about this situation with himself ad nauseum for yes. hours on end. And so saying that to himself is saying, okay, you got it out of you. Now let's move on. Let them be, and let's see what could happen. Uh, in our in uh, in my life or in our lives, you know, I think that's what I I totally agree. That that's what that means. A hundred percent. This is what's weird about talking about this movie the way we're talking about it, because this film has one more scene. Yeah. If that were the end of the movie, I would think, OK, Mark is now going to move on. He's going to stop obsessing about Juliet. Hmm. He's going to go work on his own life. The final scene of this short film is Mark. Peter and Juliet go to the airport to meet their friend, Jamie, who's coming back from Portugal with Mm. his new wife or fiance. And Jamie says, hi, Mark. And Mark says, I just thought I'd tag along. So he has just tagged along with his friends, Peter and Juliet to the airport. And that is the end of this film. Which again, and this is, there's a couple airport moments where I'm just like, "Mm," and it's like, I think the intention is he's okay tagging along. He's okay being the third wheel where he wasn't before is I think what they're going for. But again, it's really weird in my head canon. I think these three eventually just become a thruple and that's probably the best for all of them. (laughs) I really, I really feel like that's probably the best happy ending that these three are going to have. But, uh, but yes, for the purposes of what Richard Curtis is doing, I think this is the, he, he's, he is able to let it go and actually be around his best friend and his wife as a platonic friend who's not a creeper is kind of like where I think that that is intention. But like we, like as we've established, there are so many steps along the way where it just edges a little too much into creepy territory that pulling back from that is still like, I don't know, man, you're a weirdo. Like you're a weird dude. 
Yeah, and I, you know, and I, I would hate to leave this film without with this section of the discussion here without mentioning like it's it's a white dude trying to steal a black guy's wife. Like it's like it's a bad look, but. You know, these are they're also friends. Like that's the number one thing you want to focus on is that they're friends and this is happening. But the look, the optics of it in 2021, not good. Or in 20 whenever you look at it, the optics of it aren't good. Well, you know, but so I think the, I, I, you actually made me think of something else. And I think hmm. here's actually where this storyline betrays the underlying themes of the movie. Yeah. Where Richard this is where Richard Curtis makes a mistake. Is that just as we were talking about the Billy Mac storyline, that yeah. platonic love, that friendship love is yeah. equally yeah. as important. Uh, the reason this storyline doesn't work is because Mark's never honest to Peter. Right. He yep. never tells Peter. Like, that's what it really is. Right. Is like, it's like, look, I mean, there, and this would be super weird and awkward, but if the two of them had come to the door right. and Mark had said, here's the deal. Like if Peter, Peter's not a part of this conversation. So I think the reason people mm-hmm. ultimately have an issue with this storyline is that, Peter is never aware that his best friend did all of this stuff that is super shitty. Um, He's then not aware that his wife runs out and kisses him. You know, like there's, there's a whole bunch of things and Peter's left in the dark where if the underlying thing of this movie is being a hundred percent true at Christmas is the right thing to do. This storyline doesn't actually do that. You're right. But again, the optics, it's two white people doing things behind the guys, black guys back. That's not good. And so I'm just saying, right. That optics element of it, uh, in addition to what you're pointing out, Mike, and rightfully pointing out, I think all, you can look at this entire storyline. It, it vies for, as you said earlier, Mike, the most troublesome for a number of reasons. You know, yeah, for but I mean, I mean, a, boy, a white guy doing that to any person uh, of any ethnicity as their best friend is equally as shitty. I mean, yes, that adds a different color to it, literally and figuratively, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, mm-hmm. in general... It is very like the entire I, I think it's like it is like he's not true. He's not honest to his best friend. Right. What, what's interesting about all this is that I think because we have really good actors and these are all movie stars and it's really well made and it's well shot and the script is good. All of this, I think, despite my reservations, it all totally works. Do You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'm 100 yeah. percent involved in this story from beginning to end. I only, in thinking about it, go, man, this is kind of fucked up. Yeah. Let's meet Daniel and Sam. So Daniel, Liam Neeson, goes to a wedding. And what we find out is this wedding is probably very, very close to the death of his wife. Mm. Um, Which is interesting that this is the guy who made four weddings and a funeral. Because here we are at weddings and funerals again. Uh, He goes back home. He calls his friend Karen because he doesn't have anyone else to talk to. Uh, His friend Karen is Emma Thompson. And and let's let's be real clear. I love every single thing Emma Thompson does in this movie. Top to bottom, start to finish. I think she is amazing. Horrible moment right now, though. Can I call you back? Of course. Doesn't mean I'm not terribly concerned that your wife just died which is hilarious <laughs> and and a great friend thing in a horrible way yeah. and gets off the phone and now we cut to Daniel's at the funeral. Joe and I had uh, a lot of time to prepare for this moment. Which means that she had a long illness and knew right. she was gonna die. Some of her uh, requests, uh, for instance, that I should bring Claudia Schiffer as my date to the funeral. I was confident she expected me to ignore. But others, she was pretty damn clear about. When she first mentioned what's about to happen, I said, over my dead body. And she said, no, Daniel, over mine. I just want to point out how much we uh, we get the character of his dead wife with mm-hmm. just a couple of lines. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And, and we really like her, mm -hmm. you know? We get her sense of humor, we get her strength. So she's going to say her final farewell to you, not through me, but inevitably, ever so coolly, through the immortal genius of the Bay City Rulers. And during this slideshow, we get our first glimpses of Sam, which is Joanna's son, and Daniel's stepson, which is uh, Thomas Sangster, who we're going to see more of in very different things later as he grows up. But at this moment, he is ridiculously cute. Yeah. Um, where's his dad? Oh, good question. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I assume I, I think I always just assumed his dad must have been dead. I mean, mm. his dad's definitely not around or maybe he's just a deadbeat. Maybe he's an asshole. Yeah. He's definitely not in the picture. Clearly. It's clearly uh, it's Peter. Um, <laughs> it's a week later, maybe. And Daniel's now with Emma Thompson and he's concerned about his son, Sam, who is spending all his time in his room upstairs. There's nothing unusual about that. My horrid son, Bernard, Bernard stays in his room all the time. Thank goodness. <laughs> Daniel's worries that he's injecting heroin into his eyeballs, <laughs> um, which I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> it's, um, it's a good thing <laughs> to not know that that's a thing. See, the problem is, was his mom always used to talk to him, you know, and I don't know, the stepfather thing seems so suddenly to somehow matter like it never did before. And Emma, I love what she says because it's both really honest and really kind. Listen. It was always going to be a totally shit time. Just be patient. And maybe check the room for needles. <laughs> and then Daniel says, and when he does come out, it's obvious he's been crying. Yeah. And the next thing that happens is so unexpected and true. And it, I love that we get to see this side of Liam Neeson's acting ability because it's not a side that we see. The vulnerable and the sweet... And, and later on in this movie, the fun. But at this moment, he just bursts into tears. Yeah. <laughs> Emma Thompson's response is... Get a grip. People hate sissies. <laughs> I love the Brits. I love the Brits. Uh, do you have a comment on the people hate sissies line? No, I don't. I just more... It's more comment, like, again, like, a, a, following the thread of, like, the truth thing in this movie, like, Emma Thompson is a character who consistently is completely yeah. honest. Yeah. Uh, and that, until, so she, she is, until she's not until she's not, but then comes around like, you know, like, it's like, you, you can see where it's like she, but they, every scene that she is in and we'll get to her story in a minute. Like she mm -hmm. is always like shooting from the hip in an almost inappropriate way, but because it's Emma Thompson, she makes it work. Right, right. I, it's funny. Cause I am going, I agree with that partially and I'm going to totally disagree with that actually when we, when we get along part, part of it, mm -hmm. two sides of her character, I think get to um, it. Great. Can't wait. But back um, here, <laughs> we cut to uh, Sam and Daniel on a bench. By the way, apparently there was a whole much longer scene that they deleted in this story. Mm. And he's trying to talk to his stepson. Is it just mom or is it something else? Hmm? And he asks if there's school bullies or something like that. Can you give me clues? Truth is, actually, I'm in love. Sorry? I know I should be thinking about mum all the time, and I am. But the truth is, I'm in love. And I was before she died, and there's nothing I can do about it. And Liam Neeson laughs. Oh, so great. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little relieved. Why? 
but because I thought it would be something worse. And this, I, there's a thing about putting words and language into a little kid's mouth that generally little kids wouldn't speak this way that is so great sometime. And this, this kid is one of them. Worse than the total agony of being in love. Uh, no, you're right. Yeah, total agony. <laughs> well, that's what's great about the laugh moment. He laughs and he's like, come on, aren't you a little too young? And deadpan, the kid goes, no. And that completely puts the brakes yeah. on me. It's a great moment. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, let's deal with this for real. Yeah, okay, what do we do? It's so great. And then he he actually schools the kid, right? Mm-hmm. What's that famous line? Out of the mouths of babes. So it's just like <laughs> he's teaching him in that moment. He's reminding him, hey, love can be pretty uh, powerful no matter what age you are when you feel it. So it's yep. great great interaction between them and now this becomes the plot of this film yeah is is daniel is obsessed with figuring out how to solve his stepson's love problems and to me there is i think it's all really sweet and lovely and there's also sort of like man this is what you're doing to not deal with the fact that the love of your life just died Mm. you know what i mean like there's a strange uh transference going on um but i love them going like okay we can crack this and what does she he feel about you? She doesn't even know my name. And even if she did, she'd despise me. She's the coolest girl in school. And everyone worships her because she's heaven. <laughs> hey, we've all been there. We've all been there. Well, basically you're fucked, aren't you? <laughs> um, it's later on. He's working at the computer and the kid enters. He can't sleep because he found out that Joanna which, by the way, she has the same name as his mom who died. Yeah. Which is another weird thing. And she's going back to America. That's the end of my life as I know it. That is bad news. Well, we need Kate, and we need Leo, and we need them now. (laughs) Cut to Titanic. (laughs) The famous scene on the bow. And I love that as we're watching the Do You Trust Me moment of Kate Winslet on the bow of the Titanic, that they're kind of doing it together on the couch. It's really, really cute. You trust me? I trust you. I mean, I think what's kind of great about, obviously Sam being in love with Joanna is kind of the drive of this that leads to the big finale. Um, but Liam Neeson kind of losing the love of his life, like this really is him. Like it, it's, it's, I think it's important that he's the stepfather and that these two have no connection and that he has no idea what to do with him. And then the two of them sort of bonding over this romance and this discussion about romance and what to do uh, with both of their lives, actually. Like it's both, you know, both of them being completely honest. And again, Liam Neeson being very honest with him in a way that a father usually wouldn't in the way that he talks about things like the real romance of this plot of this storyline is the two of them. It's, it's yeah. him sort of becoming his real father in a way yeah. in a very unique kind of relationship that they have uh, when they're completely kind of estranged from each other at the beginning. I think that's 100 percent the truth, brother. Uh, to me, I've always been like people always talk about, oh, he, he you know gets to the airport and he says what he needs to say to the girl. That's all nice. The story is about them coming together, them falling in love with each other, them. I mean, and he probably did love uh, the kid already, but him falling in love with the, him as possibly, as you said his new dad fully and that whole progress. So him getting him to the airport, him putting him in that position, him getting them, him to that moment. It's all part of this emotion, dealing with his drumming, which we'll get to dealing with all that is showing his love uh, for uh, his son and wanting to put him in a position to at least get a chance to say what he needs to say to the girl. 
I couldn't agree more. I think watching their relationship build is amazing. Yeah. I actually think for me, the more I think about the obsession with getting your 10, 11 year old kid hmm. to, to, you know, for the love of his life is a little weird. And I also find it weird that like, okay, your wife just died. Your kid is hopelessly in love with a relationship, which probably can't work out because I think she's moving back to America. Mm. And so you go, you know what we need to do? We need to watch an incredibly romantic story about a woman who, where the love of their life dies. Mm. You know, there's something sort of odd about what's actually mm. happening. But Sam happens to see a really sexy music video, yeah. and this gives him an idea. And he runs in and he says, I have a plan. Thank the Lord. Tell me. Well... Girls love musicians, don't they? Uh-huh. Even the really weird ones get girlfriends. That's right. Meatloaf definitely got laid at least once. For God's sake, Ringo Starr married a Bond girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he says, basically, there's a big concert. If I was in the band, there's a chance she might actually fall in love with me. And rather than saying, this is a dumb plan, <laughs> he says... I think it's brilliant. I think it's stellar. A apart from the one obvious tiny little baby, little hiccup. I don't play musical instrument. Yes, sir. A tiny insignificant detail. <laughs> Cut to the closed door. We hear terrible drumming. And on the chalkboard outside the door, it says, rhythm is my life. Two weeks later, he walks by the door. Obviously, he's not even sleeping because this kid is drumming so much. The chalkboard says Ringo rules. Now, it may or may not be Christmas Eve or somewhere real close to Christmas. Again, this is where the timing of this kind of gets a little wonky. Did you notice yet? No. You know the thing about romance is people only get together right at the very end. And again, it's like, wait, so you somehow are practicing being a drummer and are already playing in this band because the show is like at least the next night or two and yet she hasn't noticed you that seems very strange and then he asks by the way i feel bad i never asked you how your love life is going uh-huh no as you know that was a dumb deal long ago unless of course claudia schiffer called it's our second claudia schiffer reference <laughs> in which case i want you out of the house straight away you wee motherless mongrel we all want to have sex in every room including yours <laughs> which is cute and funny and i do love the the friendship relationship it's not exactly father-son relationship it's right. like yeah it's like big brother little brother mm, sort of thing. right now it's time for the big concert Villiers well, school would now like to present their chosen christmas number uh, lead vocals by 10 year old joanna anderson the curtains open the spotlight on her she starts singing all i want for christmas acapella and man yeah <laughs> She's got some pipes. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing I need. <laughs> uh, and Daniel is stunned. His friend Karen is stunned. And who is playing drums in this big musical number? But Sam. As the song is building to its climax, we get to... She points right at Sam and the biggest smile comes on her, his face until she points at a whole bunch of other people. <laughs> Welcome to the game, kid. Welcome yep. to the game. And I love that he finishes the last bit of drums really angry. Yeah, <laughs> jealous. Exactly. Yeah. And it's after the show. 
Leah, Daniel runs up to Sam and goes, Sammy, fantastic show, classic drumming. And Sam is upset. The plan didn't work. Tell her that. Tell her what? Tell her that you love her. No way. Anyway, they fly tonight. Even better. Sam, you've got nothing to lose, and you'll always regret it if you don't. Which I love. I think that's really good advice. I never told your mom enough. I should have told her every day because she was perfect every day. That's really sweet. Okay, Dad. Let's do it. Let's go get the shit kicked out of us by love. Yes. <laughs> that's got to be on a t-shirt somewhere, right? I, mean, <laughs> I, need, I need that t-shirt if there is one. <laughs> and I love that Sam just goes, give me one second. I have to go away so that you could bump into Claudia Schiffer, basically. <laughs> Which is what he bumps into a woman who surprisingly looks exactly like Claudia Schiffer. And it is Claudia Schiffer, of course. And they have this moment and it is obvious there's instant attraction. And we know because of the way the movie's set up that this is in fact Daniel's next true love. You know what I mean? It's like destiny. Yeah. But it's also, here is another relationship where it's entirely the surface physicality that is the cause of the connection. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it totally, totally works. And we run out to catch Joanna, but it's too late. They're driving away and it goes, okay, I know a shortcut to the airport. So now we're heading off to the airport and we get to security and he go, and they won't let him through without a boarding pass. And he says, not even to let the boy say goodbye to the love of his life. And there's a pause, and he says, No. <laughs> and up walks the strange man in a very beautiful suit who can't find his boarding pass and is looking around and looking through all of his stuff. And Daniel says, Unless you want to make a run for it. And the kid runs past the security guard. And at that moment, this well-dressed man who turns out to be Rowan Atkinson turns around, and there is a look. Did he do that boarding pass thing on purpose to help the kid get by? Oh, of course. Yes. 100% he did it on purpose. So I don't think, so I think, in a, I think, in, and I think Richard Curtis talks about this before. I think I've read it, but like, I think at some point, uh, Rowan Atkinson was supposed to be in more of the stories mm -hmm. and kind of more mm -hmm. of a through line was supposed to be almost like this magical, magical yeah. Christmas spirit of love or whatever. But I think as the movie kind of progressed and progressed and progressed, he became less and less and less. So that look, I think, is a remnant of when it was kind of supposed to be something else. But based on the way the movie actually plays, I think he's a very slow and meticulous guy who works at Harrods, who was also slow and meticulous <laughs> when trying to get on a plane, when, a plane and it doesn't he wasn't doing it on purpose. But that's I think I think that I think that that look is there because I think at one point in the script and the story he was. But I don't think he really is anymore because it makes no sense. What? Um, how do you think it makes no sense? I want to hear how you there, think it makes no sense. Because there's nothing about this character that we've met in this movie. Like, just based on the Rowan Atkinson that we see in the movie, right. uh, when we get to the other storyline, he's a super annoying slow person at yeah. the store. Right, um, right, right. And then he gets on a plane. Like, why on right. earth would this random strange person who, I, as far as I can tell, can't even overhear what Liam Neeson is saying – vamp so that sam can jump over him and go in and see joanna like he doesn't there's nothing mm -hmm. about him that would indicate that he knows anything about this world at all and he's not magical or anything special so i think that but i but i, I think that when they filmed it he was mm -hmm. which is why that look is there um, yeah but i think it is something that in the edit has disappeared and doesn't really make sense so i just I kind of, i'm like yeah it is what it is I, t I, you know, I, to me, it totally makes sense. To me, it did work. To me, it does. All that is there that they didn't shoot or didn't do the storyline. All of it is there because of the way he does it. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because I'm a huge Rowan Atkinson fan and I know all his work. So to me, what he's doing here is something I've seen him do in numerous other things and play certain characters. And so he's, do he's a human being. 
he senses maybe or he or maybe he does over here. And so he does all this to give because when it all ends, he's uh, he, he found it any, or he finds it in the simplest place where he could have found it anyway. So I think he set this hole up so the kid can sneak by. Uh, so I think it works, but I totally respect that you don't feel that way. It, well, it's not that I think it works or doesn't work. I just think mm-hmm. that, y- it, as or you were saying, like whatever, you yeah. can infer anything yes, you I, want from it. Like you, you like, and I think that because particularly because the look is there, because I think right. that was the intention at one point, you can feel free to infer that, and it totally makes sense. And if it works for you, it works for you. But and I say that because men are men, and men know what it's like to be the first time you fall in love as a young kid. Sure. Like, so you help but, out where you can. You pay it for. No, no, absolutely. And like, I'm not yeah. like definitely run with that intention. I think, but like, and this comes yeah. up a lot when we talk about other things. Like, yeah, because as you, as even as you were describing it, you're like, maybe he overheard him. Perhaps this happened, but because we don't actually see a shot where right. we see him overhearing him, it's not necessarily in the movie. But like, definitely mm-hmm. something you can take away from that if you want. Yeah, to. you could definitely infer it, as you said. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with both of you. Um, so, and then Sam jumps through the metal detector, sets off the alarm, is being chased by security. And I don't know if you guys, I'm going like, the kid could get killed. Like, it's post 9 11. Post 9 11. You're absolutely like, right. This is, and, and the thing is, this is where my brain, and I know I'm, I'm probably the least romantic of the three of us, but I go, really? You're doing this? You're sending your kid, your 10 or 11 year old kid, through this whole thing for his quote unquote true love that he's never spoken to. Like (laughs) this seems like a big move that could have a lot of consequences, Uh, but it's beautifully done. He's running through the airport. Security is chasing him. He makes it to the gate, sees her through the glass. She can't, hear him in the background by the way there's some guy on tv playing guitar naked it's very strange <laughs> um and then he makes it he jumps over the railing he makes it to her calls her name she turns and says sam i thought you didn't know my name of course i do and security catches up to him oh jesus yeah i've got to run <laughs> and they start to take him away and he's smiling he sees daniel and he goes like yeah i've done it i said something to the girl that I love. That was all that was important. And Daniel sees that Joanna is coming up behind him, tells him to turn around, he turns around, and she kisses him on the cheek. And he jumps into Liam Neeson's arms and spins in a way that is very evocative of Kate and Leo. It's one month later, Joanna comes back from America Gets off the plane. Sam is waiting for her. Hi. Hello. He doesn't kiss her. And Daniel, talking to Carol, Claudia Schiffer, goes, Oh, you should have kissed her. No, that's cool. And I'm going, and this is what's weird about this movie. So what do you think the relationship with Carol is at this point? I mean, I think they've been hanging out a lot. I think maybe Sam and uh, her son are friends. Mm. But given the fact that his wife uh, just, had a funeral, just had a funeral. Uh, less two, than two months ago. Less than two, two months, months ago. ago uh, if they're already dating, that's a little that's a little shady. It's a little I, shady. I but, think I think the movie is implying they're already dating. That's well, what I, I think. I think it is. And I think this is where the ending of the movie, even as you said, like once you get into Christmas Eve, it gets very fuzzy and the logic yeah. doesn't. The logic of this movie makes no sense. And when you look at the logic of where these characters are a month later, particularly when you've been dealing with deaths and other things, the logic of it is, look, if you're going to get together with someone that's happening probably a ways away or this is a really weird relationship. But 
in the tale of like sort of the magical sense of this is a story about two people that are getting over the loss of their wife slash their mother. Um, and they both are very romantic. They bond over their romance and they bond over the two of them trying to help each other move on. And Sam gets Joanna and, uh, and Daniel gets Claudia Schiffer. Mm. Um, and I think that when you take the timeline out of it, that's a lovely story. When you put the specifics of this is less than two months after your wife's funeral, yeah. it gets a little weird. I hope you all enjoyed the two Grinches who just spoke and agreed about that. We all process death however we process death it doesn't mean you love anyone less i mean Patton oswald got so much shit for moving on from his wife quickly i mean we all process it and if she was passing away from a long cancer maybe he was already emotionally preparing or moving on so and maybe she was encouraging him to move on and do these kinds of things which happens in these situations so um i'm just gonna throw that out there as a balance well, to what honestly you know what actually i'm i'm kind of i might be moving to team john on this one no, because I, no team what is throwing a perspective what were there. her what were one of her dying wishes was yeah. for him to hook up with claudia, claudia shepherd yeah so he's well, following and I think, her dying wishes honoring her wishes and again as i said like once you take the timeline out mm. of it it actually is a great story that works really well and i think that again this is where love actually falls into the cracks in in like the weird fat shaming jokes or the transgender jokes or the timeline that gets a little bit wonky. Like when you get to some of the, or what, or, or everything that Mark does, like there's a bunch of specifics <laughs> that you're like this, when I scratch below the surface, the logic of a lot of this gets, a gets very weird and maybe slightly uncomfortable. But mm. when you get to the emotion that these are talking, that each one of these is a, this is a thing about love. And like, this is a, I lost the love of my life. Right. But I am going to move on. I'm going to find that person. There is another person out there that is going to excite me again. And like there is a kernel of truth in that that we all recognize that we like. And his relationship with Sam, which is the I don't know how to relate to this kid. I'm not really his father. And kind of I think Steve made a really good point that kind of settles into I'm not going to be his father. I'm going to be this person in his life. And this is the relationship that we're going to have. And I'm going to root him on and kind of again. To, and underscoring the point that we've been talking about, Sam doesn't get excited because he gets the girl at the end. Sam yeah. gets excited because he told the truth. Yeah, right. That's what's yeah, important. Great, right, right. Like, point. like Sam tells her, go, go, goes to see her. Like just showing up yeah. is sort of the moment. And when he comes out and holds his finger up and doesn't even know that Joanna came back for him, yeah. he like, he did it. He did the romantic thing. He put himself out there. And so this movie, like, so this storyline, even though, you know, the specifics of the timeline, you're like, oh, maybe, maybe he'd still be kind of sad, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but the the broad strokes work beautifully. Yeah. It, it's so funny. I mean, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I tend to have a somewhat in my head approach to, th- you know, to, to film and story. But the reality is movies don't work intellectually. They work right. emotionally. Right. And this movie works emotionally. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is that, and so you, it's not as, imp- as much as I want things to make sense and I want all the, everything to line up the right way. It's better that it lines up emotionally than it is that it lines up intellectually. Right. That's mm-hmm. just reality of film. So while Mark might still need to deal with his feelings for his best friend's wife, it does seem like we've actually found true love for an aging rock star, a couple of stand-ins, and a 10-year-old kid. 
Now, that's not a bad record for part one of our exploration of Richard Curtis's Love Actually. In part two, we'll travel to France to meet a girl from Portugal, travel to America to fulfill a fantasy, change the course of international politics, and watch two women carry the weight of their responsibilities while their hearts silently break. Despite its romantic veneer, Love Actually is a complicated film, and for some, it's a tribute to Christmas and the power of true love. But others find these stories as problematic as they are romantic. The question is, what do you think? You can let us know on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. Or you can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore Files, on Instagram at The Cinephiles Podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, where we'd love your five-star review. And on Spotify, where you can also rate the show. Plus on YouTube, where we love your comments and a whole bunch of other places. If you want to buy Love Actually or stream it through Amazon Prime, you can do that at Cinephiles.net. You can also support the show at Patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. And if you want to follow me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and you can listen to my Star Trek show, Enterprise Incidents, with my partner Scott Mance. Now, John, you can find at The Roca Says, and don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel and listen to his other podcast, The Top Ten Show, and The Geek Buddies, with his co-host and our special guest today, Michael Vogel, who you can find at MK Tune. And we can't wait to welcome Michael back to our microphones to conclude our exploration of Love Actually next week on The Cinephiles. <laughs>